lost the sheep, finds the sheep, brings it back. Hey, congrats, I found the sheep. Let's throw a banquet. Which I always thought it was funny that what if they... I'm not going to keep this. What? I'm not going to keep this. But what if they like, hey, congrats, I found the sheep. We need to kill a sheep and celebrate. <laughs> oh, it's yes. like, oh, there's one right here. Dude, that's brutal. Our plan today is to talk about the story of the prodigal son, which you can find in the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 15. And I'm getting a lot of what I'm going to talk about, what I'm going to draw out from the story from what Michael Ramsden said in a speech he gave. It's titled Certainty in an Uncertain World. And what he does is he uses his Middle Eastern background uh, and, and his understanding of the culture to sort of go through the, the story of the, the prodigal son or the parable that Jesus says in the chapter of Luke 15 and cast it in a new light. And what he says he does is he rescues or he wants to rescue truth from over-familiarity. Do you I kind just, of want to go through it as he did where we read a part of it and then we kind of talk about what you want to talk about? So I, I want to read part. the whole thing first and then we can do that. But I just want to go through... Pretty much the entire story, just before we do that. Okay. All right, so Luke 15, I'm going to start in verse 1, uh, and it goes like this. Now the tax collectors and, quote, sinners were gathering around to hear him, him being Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred, a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The youngest one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a, to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that concludes Luke 15. Before going on to just draw out some observations and really do our best to rescue truth from over-familiarity, just because this passage is so common and so well-known, I want to just propose like a title for this podcast that I've been thinking about, and I will I like discuss this with you before. But what I the the question I want to answer in this podcast today is the question: Just how free is grace? Like, is there a prerequisite for following Jesus? How free is this gift, this gift of love and reconciliation that He gives us through the cross? Is there? Do you have any? initial thoughts on that question will like what was your immediate reaction when i proposed it to you my first thought was this is going to sound really dumb but how people say more unique and technically that's grammatically incorrect because something can't be more unique if it is already unique because unique because more is sort of built into the definition like well unique, unique is it's to be binary set apart. it's binary oh it's, it's one or the you're other. either unique or you're not unique and how does that relate to grace well free or not free and so what, what is the definition of grace i was thinking about free the way i've under the, the way i've always understood grace is that it's the unmerited favor of god right unmerited meaning there's nothing you can do nothing you can pay to sort of deserve this and get it in exchange for anything. Like you cannot give anything in exchange for grace. You cannot yeah. get anything in exchange for God's favor. And so he gives you grace because precisely. So is precisely, grace free really? This is the question. Yeah. just Is grace free? And I guess what, what I want to do is sort of un- explore what grace is a little, a little bit further and through the story too. But one thing um, as I was studying this passage today that I want to point out is if you want to if you want to talk about the story of the prodigal son and you want to start in 15 you can't start in 15 because the story as I see it actually begins in 14 the story begins in 14:1 and so I'll start in 14 and I won't read the entire way through 14 but I'll just highlight 
these uh, key sections to provide like a background setting for for where 15 is coming from and the context of the book of Luke. And so 14 starts like this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prom prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Okay, so it's the Sabbath, right? And what the, the Jews sort of observe on the Sabbath day is this strict code of rest, right? You're not supposed to do anything. Uh, and so Jesus's question, as I understand it to the, to the Pharisees and the experts in the law is, am I allowed to do this? Like, am I allowed to heal this guy? Is, do, do you guys think this is, is it okay to do this on the Sabbath? Um, but verse, verse four, but they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and he sent him away. So clearly we see what Jesus thinks is right, is healing is okay. Uh, and then verse five, then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Then go on to verse seven. And what a lot of Bibles will do in between six and seven is put a subheading. And so my Bible says, in, in its subheading, right before this next section that begins in seven, is Jesus teaches about seeking honor, right? And so what I have a tendency to do in reading the Bible is look at these subheadings and think, okay, so we're in a completely different topic, right? But I think the way Luke wrote wrote his book here and wrote sort of wrote this story is without the subheading, right? That's added in. And so Luke would say, no, this is a, this is a continuation from, from where we started in 14.1. Remember when one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. Okay, so then verse seven makes sense in light of that. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. And so he goes, he goes on to tell them a different parable and you can read it, read it for yourself if you'd like, but it's uh, gonna cover eight through 14. But just notice, so he's at the house and he sees how the guests are picking places of honor at the table and he's going to give them some advice. And then continuing on to verse 15, we find, though it's another subheading, and it's, it looks like it's another section, it's actually a continuation of 14. And it says, when one of those, when one of those at the table with him heard this, right, the advice he just gave, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus went on to tell another parable um, or another story, it seems. And then verse 25, I do think, is a continuation of 14.1, purely because Luke seems to write in a way where the story just continues. And so I'm going to interpret it in light of that, right? He doesn't stop and say, now Jesus went to this other place. He just says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. This is 14.25. Large, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. Okay, so he goes on to give this entire next passage, okay? Um, and I think this part is crucial. This part is crucial in the way that I understand chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, and the way that I understand grace also, okay? So verse 14, uh, sorry, chapter 14, verse 25 through 35 is in my Bible another subheading. It's under another subheading, um, and it's it looks like it's a completely different section, 
but as I've said, I think it's a continuation of what's going on at the house of this prominent Pharisee, remember 14.1, where Jesus is being carefully watched, okay? So we have crowds, and Jesus turns to the crowds, and he said, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Those words sting. Those words cut. As I read them, those words like take their place in my, in my own heart and they convict me. Because as I examine my life and I examine my desires, I think a lot of me says, I don't prefer him. Right? And I've heard people say the word hate here is his, his way of saying prefer. But these words are definitely convicting to me because I don't know if my own heart matches with them. Do you have anything to say about that? I have a few questions for you, but as far as interpreting that particular verse about hating your brother, Jesus literally says in Matthew 5, anyone who hates his own brother in his heart no, yeah. Murder against right. them. So you can't. Which makes me think they're it's a different word for hate. No, but it's it's not hate that I think uh is convicting to me. It's the order of my loves, right? We've talked yeah. about Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the first commandment, and he's gonna go on to say, I think a little bit later in the book of Luke, the first and greatest commandment is this love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Okay. Um and I think what he's hitting at here is like if you don't love me above everything else, you cannot be my disciple. And okay. there's there's something to say okay. about, okay, he hasn't revealed himself completely as God yet. Okay, but what does it mean to love God above, or love Jesus above everything I else? I don't know. Above everyone else. Because that, because what is Jesus, if you love him, you do what he says. And what does he says? He says, he says love other people. Right, you're right. So, but it, it how does can mean... you put him above everyone else when... It he means says, everything is surrendered. It, I want to get into it, but I do think it, it means everything is at his disposal. Everything is under his lordship. What he says what he says goes, right? Complete trust in him. And I want to keep reading because we're okay, going to find... Okay, well, I also have another question. You said verse 14.1 is where it really starts. He's sitting at a table on the Sabbath, and then all of a sudden there's a bunch of crowds around him. You think that's all like the same thing, like the same day, or what do you? No, I do. I do think so, um, because what Ben Stewart, you can look up the the one of the sermons he gives. I think it's called Extravagant Grace. What he points out is like this is something that large crowds would gather at. Is this is uh, was a tradition in the Jewish culture where certain prominent rabbis would sit at a table and sort of discuss things, and so the entire the entire town or or people around sort of the, the place where they were discussing would come to watch, right? Because this was an entertaining and educating event to be a part of. And what you also notice and sort of reading through the Gospels is that Jesus often has large crowds follow him. And so I don't think this is out of place at all. Is Wherever Jesus goes, there seems to be crowds with him. Here, let me read through the rest and we can sort of come back to the idea of crowds. How big is this guy's house? I don't know. They might have been like outside. I don't know. That okay. that's an interesting question. Okay. But I'm going to continue reading here. 
I'll go back to 27. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, I just want to pause right here and point out, this is sort of absurd for him to say, carry his cross, right? Because they don't yet have him as the one setting the precedent of the cross. Yeah. To them, in the Jewish culture, at that time, the cross was this horrible, horrific, and it still is, right? But it wasn't known as, as the method of salvation. It was just the Roman form of execution, whereby they would execute uh, criminals, and sort of like the worst of criminals, too. Julius Caesar crucified the pirates that held him ransom after they let him go. But it's such a horrible form of punishment that he slit their throats before he ever crucified them. Wow. But yeah, that, that just goes to show like just sort of the absurdity. Anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That is an insane statement to make. And I wonder if anyone measures up to him. Right at this point in his ministry of their commitment to him. But going on to verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, quote, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war with another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off. Key phrase, still a long way off. We're going to run into that in 15. Um, and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. That is a call to commitment right there. And that is sort of the most extreme call to commitment you can ever find. And you're going to run into this statement again. And I believe it's in Matthew chapter uh, 19 in the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus encounters this young man who asks him, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, obey them. And the guy says, what do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, and that word perfect can also be translated complete, if you want to be perfect or complete or whole in the sight of God, I think, go sell all your possessions and then come and follow me, right? And what, the story of the rich young ruler, right? Because this guy's a, a rich young, rich young guy. <laughs> um, the way it is is this guy walks away sad and what the story says is that because he had great possessions, and then Jesus goes on to say, how hard is it for, for, for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that sort of perplexes his disciples. But going, going back to here, it's the same call I think that he's making. 33, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on to say, verse 34, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's why I have the question, just how free is grace? Okay, Because in verse 33, he says, Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. 
right? And we would say the disciples, the one, those who follow Jesus, are the ones who are right with God, right? Justified, saved, another word of saying it, reconciled with God in a relationship with Jesus, those who are going to heaven. Uh, and what he says is, any, any one of you who does not give up everything he has, right, cannot be my disciple. Does that mean he cannot be saved? And if that, if it is true, right, what do we make of grace then? Because it seems like grace isn't as free as it initially, or as we initially defined it as free, right? We would say grace is going to cost you your whole life. You're going to sell everything in your life to get God's favor, right? And it's going to cost you everything you have. Is that what grace is? Just how free is grace? Or, am, or are we missing something here? Um, and I think the story of the prodigal son is going to throw light on that. I think it's going to show, throw light on what grace is and whether or not it is free. Is there anything you wanted to point out or add? Because I'm doing a lot of talking here. Yeah, you do. It seems like you already have a, what you want to say. and so. Or I want us to discover something. I don't know. I don't exactly know what we're going to discover yet. I do. I want to pull back the curtain a little bit on this story, but I do want us to discover something. But I do want to re- return to this to this text, uh, and I want to look at fourteen thirty-five, the latter half or the latter part of that verse, when Jesus says, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." That's a confusing phrase. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay. Um, and what I've noticed in reading the book of Matthew recently... What do you mean that's a good... That's pretty obvious. It means everyone listen. Okay, I'll, I'll bring up why I'm confused about it is... Okay, um, I mean... Matthew 13, because I'm, I'm reading this in light of what Jesus says uh, just a little bit previously that you can find in the book of Matthew chapter 13 like you know may the lord deal with me be it ever so severely it's just something that they say i see i don't think it's just something that they say and i think this passage that i'm about to point to is going to point to that this is matthew 13 10 jesus just told them a parable right just like the the prodigal son is a parable he told them a different parable and the disciples uh, it says came to him and asked him why do you speak to the people in parables and, and then he goes on to give this mystical explanation or mysterious explanation. He he replied, quote, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have in abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And then he quotes the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But then talking to his disciples, he says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, 
and did not hear it. Okay, and so that's okay. why I think what he's saying okay. means something. Okay, a bit yeah, more. that makes sense. But that passage kind of brings up a interesting. But yeah, there's there's a lot of things you can say about that passage. One thing I do want to point out um, is that seeing and hearing in this passage from Matthew 13, Jesus connects to the heart. He says, "Okay, so they hear, but they don't hear." This is what it's saying. Like, I I think it can be compared to saying, like, you're hearing and you're seeing, but you're just not getting it, right? That's that's why like. You listen to something, but you don't hear it. Or you hear something, but you're not listening. Right. And it's it, like it, that, but a step further, where you're listening, but you're not. And you're maybe even comprehending, but you're not. Feeling. feeling. Maybe not. You Maybe even feeling, but you're not, like, changing. Okay. Sure. I don't know. But keep going with the parable of the lost son. Let's get to it. Well... I, do, I want to point out something real quick that's going to throw light on the parable of the lost son. Going back to Matthew 13, where we were talking about hearing but never understanding, seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. Um, and so it seems that before you can see and understand, or see and perceive and hear and understand, your heart has to be made soft. Your heart has to be in, in sort of the right position to hear, Okay. Um, and what I want to point out in 1435, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then check this out. 151, he says, now the tax collectors and quote sinners were gathering around to hear him. I think what Luke is trying to point out here is that these people, the tax collectors and like quote unquote sinners are the ones who are hearing okay. are the ones who are in a position to receive the message. Their hearts are in that place where they can understand. And then we, I think we see sort of this distinction made with the Pharisees in verse two, because, because Luke uses the word, but, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law dot, dot, dot had a different reaction. Right. And so he says, they muttered quote, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Yeah. Their hearts are in a different position yeah. than the tax collectors and sinners. Okay? okay, and this all points back to fourteen twenty-five, where Jesus says, or where it's, where Luke points out that large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and then he turns to them and makes the statement. Okay, and so he makes the statement about the cost of discipleship, and about like the the crazy commitment that is required to be his disciple. And then you see two reactions from people within the crowd. You see tax collectors and sinners coming closer to hear him. And then you can almost see Pharisees and teachers of the law have this completely completely different reaction, almost, as I envision it, closing themselves off to his message, right? because it doesn't suit them the way that they would like it to. But going on, 15.3, it says, Then Jesus told them this parable. Okay, it doesn't say, then Jesus told them these parables. It says this parable, singular. It's one story with three parts. And that's something that Michael Ramson points out in the talk he gives. And so the first start, first start, first part is this sort of scenario about a person having a hundred sheep and losing one of them and then finding it and throwing a party. 
and he says, rejoice with me. And then key phrase right here, I have found my lost sheep. And, and then this, then it goes on to talk about um, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who did not repent. And so it goes on to talk about repentance and, okay, what do you make of this? Like he, the shepherd is the one who found the sheep. He says, I have found my lost sheep. The party's going to be about the shepherd, right? When they are rejoicing, it's not about the sheep that was so good because it let itself be found. It's going to be about the shepherd because the shepherd is a good shepherd. Okay? I don't know. I mean, if you just take it as that's what happens, it's like, oh, yay, I found it. It's like, you're not celebrating. Wow, man. Congrats. You are so good at finding things. We should celebrate how good you are at finding things. No, it's saying celebrating the occasion that okay. what was once lost is now found. Okay, okay. Not that the shepherd found the sheep and not that the sheep just like... Would you, would you say the shepherd is the one who gets the glory though? Who gets the credit? Who gets the praise? <clears throat> Maybe they're celebrating the occasion. It doesn't seem like there's glory to be had. There really isn't. I mean, if I lost my jacket, which you know I do a lot, I went through several North Face jackets when mom would get very upset at me losing those. Whenever I found it, there wouldn't be like, hey, congrats. Okay, Let's what throw if a the, party what if the jack- for finding okay, the jacket? Fine. All right. Because that's also the lost coin. It's not like the coin can just walk away. Right, some, something happened. Something happened. And I think it's really like this inanimate object in a sheep. People have control over inanimate objects and sheep, like even sheep don't have control over sheep. sheep. But, but I think it's more important when you talk about the prodigal son because it's not that the prodigal son just fell away, like physically just, oh, wow, suddenly I'm in the middle of a different town. And it's not that the father pushed him away or made him fall away or just forgot because unlike the sheep or or the coin no this is like a person the father can't do anything to change the son's will like this change would, his... you, would you say like the son in the story yeah. wandered off the son wandered off okay and i think that's an important an important part of it um, that's an important part of it and so i don't really get the celebration for the first two that's okay, it, 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 it's confusing. I do yes, think it it's is. confusing. It's why weird. Why do you like, think why they do you... would celebrate? Yeah, why celebrate? Why throw a party for, like, a... a... I lost a coin. Hey, I found it. Let's celebrate. And I, maybe that's part of the absurdness of the story, right? Maybe that would strike the same audience back then as sort of absurd. Like, you just found a coin. Like, what's the big deal? You just grabbed your sheep. Like, what's the big deal? And maybe part of the point is, like, okay, this is a big deal in God's eyes, that's meant to be absurd to us because it's meant to show us something about mm-hmm. who he is and that's sort of hidden to us right now. Yeah. Um, but I do want to go on and get to the lost son. But before we do that, the story of the lost coin, we find the same phrase that I had referenced just a little bit earlier. Rejoice with me. Key phrase, I found my lost coin. I found my lost coin. Okay. And so like it I found the coin I lost. <laughs> <laughs> I, I repeat things. I, I have a tendency to repeat things. But what I want to highlight is how the woman says, I'm the one who found it. Right? And then he goes on to talk about there being rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so here we have this weird contrasting between repentance and a coin that's found. And then we come to this major story 
And so just to highlight a few things in the story, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And you remember listening to the to what Michael Ramson said. In a patriarchal society where the father is the head of the family. It's like, I want you to die because I just want your money. Right. Like, And how messed up is that? And then it says, so he divided his property between them. Which is kind of weird to do. Like, that's not a normal reaction. Normal reaction would be like, you're crazy. No, go. No. no. Okay, so normal reaction in this this society would be to beat the younger son. Yeah. Okay, and so what's supposed to happen in, in this scenario is that the older son is supposed to act as the mediator between the father and the younger son. The older son is supposed to placate the father and say, don't beat him too badly. And the older son is also supposed to rebuke the younger son and say, you idiot. never do this. But what we see is something completely different. The father divided his property between them. So the older son not only doesn't fulfill his role, but he accepts what the father has done. The father divided his property between them and gave both of them their share of the estate. And the older son doesn't say anything about it. And what the younger son does is he gets together all he has, sets off for a distant country, and squanders his wealth in wild living. Yeah. What I want to point out in saying this is that in order for the younger son to take his wealth and leave, he has to liquidate it. Right? He has to make it portable. And so he can't take property with him he literally he can't take acres of land with him so he has to sell the acres of land and then take it with him and so at this point it's definitely known what's going on in this family the whole community would know because the father just sold part of his estate and then it says after he had spent everything there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need and what michael ramson points out with this phrase began to be in need is that the son is in a state where he has to focus like solely on meeting his basic needs, food, water, shelter. And, and so what Michael Ramson points out is like the son begins to think with his stomach at this point. Okay, So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country in order to meet these basic needs. And the citizen of the country sent him into, into the fields to feed pigs. And he gets to such a destitute position that he longs to eat just what the pigs eat. And then it says, verse 17, when he came to his senses. And literally, what the phrase means is when he came to came to himself. And what I take that meaning is like when he began to see the condition that he was in. And he says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And so in this state where he's meeting his basic needs of food and water and shelter, I think it's important to note that, or it's important to note he's thinking in light of these things. Okay, can you, what's like the point of all this? So we can come back to all these things. So what's the so point? The point that I want to discover here is, is this like speech he gives does he mean it or not when he says i will set out and go to my father and say to him and then he says the speech and it's almost like he's rehearsed it this is something he's rehearsing okay only to get what he wants which is food only to get in a position where he can eat again okay and so he says father i've sinned against heaven and against you i'm no longer worthy to be called your son make me like one of your hired men what's emphasized here is the phrase, make me like one of your hired men. I don't think it's that he's that sorry 
for what he's done. I think he just wants to eat again. Okay, okay. You said, does he mean it? Break down everything of that tiny speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Do you think he means that? I think he's. I think it's something he's just saying. Here's what I compare it to. So I get in trouble when I'm a kid. My dad takes away my phone, okay? And I really want my phone back. What I'm going to do when I go to my dad is say, Dad, I'm really sorry for what I've done. Can I have my phone back? You know, and it's not that I'm that sorry for what I've done. It's that I just want my phone back. And so what Michael Ramson says is like, this is the same sort of form of repentance. You remember the first two stories talked about repentance. This is the same form of repentance that Pharaoh used to Moses in Exodus, where God sends these plagues on Egypt. And Moses says like, these plagues aren't going to stop until like you let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh says like, you're right. These plagues are horrible. I'm sorry for what we've done. Take your people and go. And what what Pharaoh wanted in this story is just for the plagues to end. Yeah. It's just for like So, the, so the, he says that the plague stops and then... And then Pharaoh recants. And then, yeah, exactly. So that's actually a very interesting one because the plagues did stop. The plagues stopped. And he did say that like, you're right. This is horrible. You can go now. But then he recants. It would have already... Yeah, but, then he but he recants, recants. Which shows he doesn't mean it, So, So if this son didn't mean it, and if he didn't and eventually mean point. it, you point. think he would recant. You would think he would recant, right? Okay. Okay. I see. And that's I the see. key point. Okay. And I think at this point in his story, he's thinking with his stomach. He wants to be in a position where he can eat again. So, so he just makes up this... This confession. Confession, this apology, and... Then what the father does completely changes it, and his apology will change. So he's going to carry out this plan. And then it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. It's worth pausing right here to talk about um, what it would mean that the father would run to his son. So the father, by running to him, would be showing his legs, which would be... Kind of disgraceful. The extent to which we see the father's actions here as madness are the extent to which we see grace as beautiful mm, at the same time. Yeah. Um, is because like if it's this crazy for the father to run in this patriarchal society where it's considered disgraceful and shameful to expose your ankles, the father running, exposing his ankles, is throwing and casting disgrace upon himself. Right, And so the father in, in reconciling and reaching out to the son and in doing this crazy thing is bringing disgrace upon himself. And, you know, there's all kinds of allusions here to the cross and Jesus bearing shame on the cross. The father taking disgrace upon himself and running out to the son show, shows you the sort of man that he is and just how deep he loves the son. Okay, so we have this mad action of the father running and then we have him throwing his arms around the son and kissing him. Okay, so the kiss in this culture is a sign of reconciliation, a sign of saying, okay, there's nothing between us. So the father throws his arms around the son. In this position, what is the only place that the father can kiss the son? On his neck or on his cheek. Slaves kiss their master's feet. Students kiss a rabbi's hand. And equals kiss on the neck or on the cheek. And so what is the father doing here? He's saying... I'm con I consider you an equal, right? And he's kissing him, a sign of reconciliation. This is the father's way of showing him, not just saying it, but showing him there's nothing between us. 
you offended me. You offended me deeply, but I forgive. He offers this grace. He offers this forgiveness before the son asks for it, before the son can give his speech. Yeah. Okay. And so we have this father doing this action and initiating here. And then the son, verse 21, the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And at this point, Michael Ramson points out, it's as if he means it for the first time. Okay. And that's the reason why he leaves out the latter half. That's the reason he doesn't say, make me like one of your hired men. It's because he means it for the first time. And what the son realizes, it's not about the money. It's about the broken relationship. And I think it's really interesting how this speech is now the son's response. It's now his response. And it's response to something the father gives him, gives him freely, even though he didn't ask for it. Okay, that's grace right there. So my question is like, if this is repentance, if this is repentance, and I think we can compare it to repentance just based on the Father's speech, right? Verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Verse 24, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. Key phrase, he was lost and is found. And we, we had in the first two parts of this parable, the shepherd saying, I have found my lost sheep. The woman saying, I've found my lost coin. The father saying, my son is found, right? The sheep is found, the coin is found, the son is found. But what's, what, what's not made explicit and what I think can be inferred is that the father found the son and the son's repentance is his being found. The son saying and meaning it for the first time, I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Is his being found. Why is it his being found? It's because the father extended his grace in the first place. It's his, because his father initiated the act of forgiveness in the okay, first place. Okay, okay, okay. So if the, while the father was still running up, the son had said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your higher servants. If he said that before he ever got the chance to embrace him, then what? Then it would be the son who found himself? So really it was just who gets it out of their mouth faster? Or what are you saying? Because Michael Ramsen, one of the things that I, I didn't really get was he was saying the father forgave him before he even knew to ask for forgiveness. No, he knew to ask for forgiveness. I mean, maybe he just didn't mean it. But he knew to ask, so... Right, and that's, that's what he would say about genuine repentance, is he didn't mean it, right? But when he sees the provision the father made for forgiveness, and he saw how the, it was the relationship that was broken, then he's finally able to mean it. And so I think there's a lot you can say about, like, what is repentance through the story? Yeah. I, I do want to highlight how what Michael Ramson talks about is, like, he gives this example of a car, right? And if I lend you my car and you go out and crash it and then bring it back to me and say, hey, I wrecked my car or I wrecked your car. I know it was yours. Sorry, I totaled it. And I say, it's all right. I forgive you. And you get off the hook. I'm the one who's left with a broken car. I'm the yeah. one who's left with the total car. I'm the one who's going to pay the price. Yeah. I like the illustration. I think it was a watermark sermon that whoever was speaking really loved ice cream and had his own special bluebell ice cream that he set aside for himself. Okay. 
he had his own special one, and no one else was like allowed to touch it or use it or anything. Right. Yeah. And his and you know he goes away, and his wife is like, oh wow, I could just you know have some of his ice cream. And she finishes off the ice cream. Okay. So he's looking forward to the ice cream the whole day. Comes back home, it's empty, and he's, and he's like, why'd you do that? She says, I'm sorry. I can get you another one, but really, it's not about the ice cream. Really, yeah. it's that she broke his trust. She broke his trust, and that, like, she owes him something. Like, he has a debt. Or she has a debt. She has a debt toward him. Yes. But something that can't be paid without going back in time. It's physically impossible to make it right. You know, the law, what does it say? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You can't do that. You right. can't. Which is... It's physically impossible. And that's And what, so when God was giving that command, like, an eye for an eye, a tail, or tooth for a tooth... What he's saying is, punishment should not exceed that which the injustice done originally. But there's no way to completely pay back. It's impossible. Forgiveness is saying, you know what? I know exactly what this person took from me. I know they cannot pay it back. And I'm trying to hold on to it as some sort of power so that everything I do against them, I can say, well, hey, you owe me. And I can use that forever because they will always owe me because... Breaking someone's trust is something that you can't go back on. Forgiveness is saying they'll never be able to end this. Everyone will just suffer. I forgive you. I Let me hit off that. We, in human relationships, offer forgiveness after the person asks for it. You come to me, and you can mean it or not. You can say, hey, will you forgive me? Or you can ball, get on your hands and knees and say, I'm so sorry, would you forgive me? And I'm going to respond to the second one probably with like a, yeah. Okay. I'll forgive you. But that's that's the nature of human relationships. And what I think we see highlighted in Luke 15 is the nature of God's forgiveness. And that's what we see in the Father. The Father extends forgiveness and extends grace before the Son asks yes. for it. And I think that's the gospel. I want to I wanna cut you off because in human relations, if you wrong me and then later, like, I could, you know, you come up to me and like, hey, John... I forgive you. Like, oh, come on. I didn't ask for forgiveness. You forgive me for what? I didn't do anything wrong. You're right. So is it the same way with God? And in this story, the father doesn't say, I forgive you. And then the son says, I have sinned against heaven and against earth. I'm no longer be worthy to come to The father shows that he is willing to forgive. Right. But in order to preserve the son's free will, he doesn't say I forgive you. He just shows it by what he's done. And that's the gospel. God shows that he loves us by sending his son to die. Shows that he's willing to forgive us of our sins by paying the price for them. So the father offers forgiveness and say we take this as, say this is the pattern for which God forgives us. Like he forgives us before we ask for it. That's grace unmerited. And in the fullest sense forgiveness that is not earned is like this forgiveness that is not asked for like so what do we make of luke 14 where jesus says any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple in light of the story where forgiveness is given completely freely why does it cost why does it cost and why would jesus say that it costs that it costs everything and i don't know that's a question i've been wrestling with for a long time because every time like you, you can find him saying this in the book of Matthew, right? Matthew 10, 
Matthew 16, and I believe Matthew 19 in the story of the rich young ruler that we talked about. Why would he say this if grace is unmerited and unearned? What does it cost? And the key word in 32 that, like, I don't know what to make of this yet. 1432, he says, if he is not able, referencing the, the king who is considering going to war against a more powerful king, saying, if he is not able, this king will send a delegation while the other is, here it is, still a long way off. Where do we find that phrase again? I don't know. Where? Luke 15, 20. <laughs> but while he was still a long way off. And I don't know what the connection to be made is here, but I do think there is one to be made. That one, I always understood that parable as we are the ones that look at our war chest. We say, shoot, we cannot win this. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough resources. Let's just surrender. I I don't think there's a relation. I do. I think so. Because I think we are the ones that are like in that parable. We're the ones that say we can't do this. So it would be us going out to meet them and saying, I surrender everything. It's unconditional surrender. And unconditional surrender, thankfully you get to keep your life. Right, asking for terms of peace, right? That would be us asking for terms of peace with God. What are the terms of peace? What are the terms of peace? The terms of peace are that Jesus gets crucified. Those are the terms of peace. That's what it took to, to make a way for a reconciled, made right again relationship between us and God was God sending his own son as a propitiation for our sins. Yes. Well, that parable still doesn't really make sense because in war, it's not like one person sinned against the other. It's like just two It's armies. two forces coming up against each yes. other. Yes. Okay. And so one king, seeing that he's outmatched, sends a delegation while, the, while he's still a long way off. There's our key phrase. He's outmatched 10,000 to 20,000. And he's not able, so he's sending a delegation while the other one is still a long way off, asking for terms of peace. The father, Luke 15, sees the son while he's still a long way off. So if there is a correlation, it would mean that God is the army that goes out and sends a delegation to that makes that negotiate surrender. To negotiate peace. So what is... But the thing is, it's what throws us off is that God is not less powerful, right? Yeah. God is yeah. all-powerful. Can you read the beginning of that parable again? He says, Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. So if it is that that is like the Father, it would be that God has 10,000 and we have 20,000? Well, let me go on because that's not the end. He says, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, if, if we are by nature, okay, under God's wrath, Ephesians 2, if we are by nature sinners and contrary to him, does giving up everything we have make us right with God? I think the answer is no. I think like if we want to pay pay the price, we're going to pay it for an eternity, right? That's what hell is. It's an eternal price to be paid. We've sinned against an eternal being that requires an eternal punishment. 
And so if we give up everything we have, will that make peace between us and God? I think that is no. What can we give him that he, that he needs? What can we give him that he does not already have, right? As being creator, already have a right to as well. And this, I'm just confused by this. You know, this may be a very inappropriate thing to draw a connection between. Do you know Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah, I know what Stockholm Syndrome is. Yeah, that's where like a prisoner relates to those who took them captive and starts to basically be on their side and fight for them. And like, even though they've done horrible things to them. Well, one of the horrible things that kind of causes Stockholm Syndrome is basically they're beaten and then maybe, you know, if they're playing like kind of good cop guy, bad cop, you know, it's like, hey, don't beat them. You just beat them less. And it's like, wow, thank you for not beating me as much as you did before. And so part of the thing that you're thankful for is something that... Is a grace that really isn't a grace. Being beaten less, you know? It's like someone taking all of your clothes and, like, leaving you there for two days and then coming back and being like, hey, here you go, and giving you your underwear. And you're like, oh, thank you for this underwear. It's like, they took everything away from you. I think a lot of people mistake surrendering your life to Christ for that. They mistake it as, I gave up everything for you, and you're just giving me, like, heaven. I mean, that, that kind of sounds Well, because like, you don't have it yet. It seems. It seems like we're just getting the scraps. Because all we know is the life that we have on earth. Right. It seems like you've taken away this from me, and you're just going to give me something that was already mine in the first place back. But really, I don't think that's what it's like. I think it's he's giving us something we didn't have. But what does it mean to give your life to him? That's that's a phrase I hear all the time for when people describe becoming a Christian. If you have given your given your life to Jesus, right? I think it means exactly what it says it means. Giving your life to the point is, if he says, I need your life, you, you give, give it. it. Who I don't does know. that? Who does that? What? And I would say, what, like, Christ follower... Do you know that is in that point of commitment, right? And there are people like who have been tested and and been proved like that, right? Like the early church was full of martyrs who did give their lives. Yeah. Did they do it on their own strength? I I don't know, but what did they did they give it? Like did they? I mean, you could say their lives were taken, but I think like what I want to highlight is like there's not a single person. There's not a single Christian who is not pegged on this, who is not disobedient in some sense. There's not a single person who, if you ask him, have you given up everything, would say, I've given up all of my rights. I am perfect in this sense. I don't think there's someone who is perfect, complete, or whole in that sense at all. Okay. Is it possible? Is it actually possible? To be in that state of commitment. I want to take it one step further. Okay. You're, you're, I think you, what you're getting at, is it possible for someone to give themselves up like that? Is it possible for someone, not just on their own strength, to be committed to something? But like, what would that even look like? Like, it doesn't seem like, like, it, it just doesn't make sense. What would it look like for someone to give their life? I mean, it's Matthew 20, verse 27, whoever wants to be first must be your slave. 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for me. Okay. So, does giving your life mean if you truly want to follow Jesus, you have to move to Thailand and start, you know, preaching the gospel to people? People do that. People do that. So, I mean, some people, but everyone, if that's the case, if literally, if you want to be a Christian, you have to move somewhere and... No, you have to live a life that you hate. That's what it seems like to me. Is if you want to be a Christian, you have to sell all of your goods and live this miserable life. You have to live you have to live a life of destitution and poverty and and just like these wretched conditions, that, right? But Paul did it with joy. John, like I think that's I think that is wrong. I don't see anywhere where it says you must live a miserable life because you know what that's doing that's saying i hate my life therefore i must be a christian <laughs> that's what it's saying. yeah it is does you see our so what does it mean what does it mean to hate your life what does it mean to give your life like this all like in the light of what the cross is which is god's saying like I'm paying it in full. I'm I'm offering forgiveness to you. Okay. And I'm initiating this. Okay. Then what does it mean when Paul says, "Do everything you can to live a peaceful and quiet life?" Huh? <laughs> because these things are like opposite ends. And you know what I think is what draws them together? What? It's the story you hear a thousand times because it's the same story over and over. It's just in different forms. Okay. It's the Lion King. Star Wars, everything. It's a typical archetypal hero story. Yeah. Someone's living a normal, quiet life. They're just kind of there. And God calls them to action. And that's what, what the gospel does. It calls us to live a life of action. The only difference is we're not the ones that's the hero, really. Jesus is the hero. Yeah, he's the hero after which heroes are patterned. Yes. And who all heroes are a shadow of. And we are supposed to imitate him. And so, basically our life is like a journey to that. But you know what happens at the end of those stories after, you know, the dragon is defeated or the ring is thrown into the fire or whatever, is that you go back and they just kind of chill. They live a peaceful and quiet life and they're actually changed. And so, I think what it, what it means how you can kind of square away living a peaceful and quiet life and hating your life is maybe it is like a maybe it is like a cycle maybe it is like you're called to action something needs to change it's hard but then through whatever circumstances god changes you and you go back to being in a peaceful state i don't know i just thought of that just now okay like as i was saying it what do you have to say i say do we have a Hidden Philosophy email address that people can write in what they think on? Uh, HiddenPhilosophy2018 at gmail.com I'd say let's just leave it as a question. What does it mean to give your life? And what's the connection between these two passages, 1432 and 1520, both of them having the phrase, still a long way off? Okay. Write in with what you think the answer is. Okay, hiddenphilosophy2018 at gmail.com. I'll put it in the show notes.